seated this morning, would you grab your copy of God's word and would you turn to the prophet Ezekiel chapter 34? So Ezekiel chapter 34. And what we're doing in this uh, Christmas series in anticipation of the advent of our Savior, we are looking at somewhat unique and often overlooked ways that the Old Testament helps us anticipate the coming of Christ, who he is, what he would do, what he would be like. And so we, we know the, the prophecies like Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11 and, and Micah 5, but uh, there are so many more because the whole Bible was in all of its various ways pointing to and anticipating Christ. And so I want to take us to a unique one this morning. So I'm going to read in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 to 16. This is in a section where Ezekiel is prophesying against the the kings and leaders of the nation at this time. So starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the stray. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray and ask his blessing upon it. <laughs> Heavenly Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We pray that our eyes will be open to behold wondrous things from your law. That you'd help us to trace the themes that you've woven throughout your story of redemption and grace. And that we would see this tapestry of wisdom working wonder that you have woven together, all culminating in our son, Jesus, or your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 
Well, we're going to keep Ezekiel 34 in mind, what we just read. But I want you to think about in Luke 2, Matthew 1, when the birth of Jesus is announced and takes place, the type of people that come and are invited to witness the birth of the King of Kings. Think of this question. When you think of the kinds of people who are going to receive an invitation for a royal event, think of it like a a king's coronation ceremony. What type of people do you expect to be on that guest list? The expectation is likely that you're not going to be on the guest list, right? It's going to be people of great political prominence, people of great social influence, people who are famous, well-known, leaders of industry, but not common, everyday, ordinary people like ourselves. For example, King Charles II had a coronation service this, this year, I believe, and here were some of the people who were on the guest list. Notably missing is any of us, all right? So you have the members of the royal family, you have the prime minister, you have all the political leaders of the Commonwealth countries of the United Kingdom, you have many of the heads of state and government, and then you have celebrities like Judy Dench, Kenneth Branagh, Emma Thompson, even pop star Katy Perry got an invitation to this coronation service. But again, notably absent from the guest list is not only you and I, but any average, everyday, ordinary person. We'll contrast that guest list with the guest list of the birth of the King of Kings. So you have on that guest list, Joseph and Mary, of course, but it must be noted that Yes, being the earthly parents of the Son of God, they are every bit a representative of an ordinary, everyday Israelite person and couple. And then surrounding that feeding trough that doubled as Jesus' first crib were animals that called that manger home and had previously been eating out of that feeding trough that the King of Kings was now lying in. And then you have magi, wise men from the East. These are Gentiles. Not, not even Israelite elite, Gentile foreigners likely coming from either Persia or Babylon, both of which were considered enemy nations historically of Israel, and yet they get an invite. And finally, the one that stands out to me is that midnight invitation to those unnamed shepherds who are sitting in the fields at night, watching over their flocks, going about the lowly, menial task of caring for and smelling like sheep. And they receive the grandest, most direct invitation of anyone on this guest list to the birth of the King of Kings. In your reading and recounting of the Christmas story, have you ever stopped to ponder this question? Of all the types of people that God could have put on the guest list for the birth of his son into this world, why are shepherds the one who received the most direct, the most grand announcement of all to come to this birth of this most cataclysmic occasion? What's this question that we're going to explore through the remainder of our sermon? And to answer that question, we need to go back to the Old Testament, and we need to see how this occupation of shepherd that is invited to the birth of the King of Kings is actually a theme that develops throughout the Old Testament and leads us to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this Advent series, we're looking at how the Old Testament anticipates, points to, prepares for Christ. And we've looked at some unique ways that it does that to gain a full appreciation that the Bible, in all of its diversity in various parts, has a unity that centers on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the thing that holds the scriptures together. So first we looked at Genesis 3.15. 
to see how the Old Testament points the way to Jesus by giving us promises that only he can fulfill. He's the one who comes to crush the head of the serpent. And then last week, we looked at Zechariah 3, 1 to 10, to see how the Old Testament points us to Jesus by giving us pictures of what Jesus alone is going to come and accomplish. This picture of a priest in rags and dirty clothes who receives pure garments, a picture of what Jesus does for us in his righteousness. Well, now this week, we're going to look at how the Old Testament points us to Jesus by introducing and developing themes that only come to resolution in Christ. So the, the Bible gives us themes like rest and God's presence and a sacrifice that it introduces, develops, and they only find their resolution in Christ. And one of those themes is the theme of shepherding or shepherd leader who will truly care for God's flock. And one way to think about the themes of the Bible and how God has woven them into the storyline is to think of them like the various themes of music that a composer writes for a film or a film score. So for example, my favorite film is the Lord of the Rings trilogies. And Howard Shore was the composer of those films. And when he was composing the music for it, he was picking out different themes that he was seeing in the story, and he wrote music to match those themes. And what he does as the story moves is he, he kind of does some musical magic. I don't know the technical terms for it. You can ask my wife about them. But he does some things with the music to play with the themes as the story develops. For example, when you first meet the main character Frodo in the Shire, when all is well and they're at home and they're enjoying their hobbit life in the Shire, you hear this sweet, cheerful Shire-themed music playing you know, nice and loud in the background, playing very sweetly. But then when Frodo and Sam begin their journey out of the Shire, right as they're leaving the Shire, you hear that Shire-themed music, but it begins to fade in the background because they're now leaving home. They're kind of entering into the danger of the unknown world of Middle-earth. Well, throughout their treacherous journey to take this ring and destroy it, there are times when they're so down, it's so dark, they feel lost, they don't know if they're going to be successful, and they think about and reflect on home. And they say things like, I wish I was back in my hobbit hole with my feet being warmed by the fire. And then you hear faintly in the background the Shire theme music playing. But it's kind of in a note of a little bit of discord. It's never as loud and sweet. It never comes to resolution. But you hear it because they're thinking about home. Well, finally, the ring is destroyed. Middle Earth has had peace restored. And the hobbits get to go back home. And what do you hear? You hear the Shire theme music playing louder and sweeter than you've heard it in any part of the story. And it finally comes to resolution, that place when music kind of reaches that place of home and ends. That's what the Bible does with themes like shepherding. It introduces these wonderful themes, but then there is notes of disharmony and discord because they've been interrupted by sin and rebellion as the nation of Israel is being fractured. But then the prophets take up those themes and you hear them playing sweetly in the background, faintly, because there's this light of hope in these prophecies that someone's gonna come and pick up this theme and bring it to resolution. And then when Christ comes, he takes up that note of music and that theme and he plays it louder and sweeter and more clear than you've ever heard it before and he brings it to resolution. So that's what we're gonna look at in this theme of shepherding. The theme of a shepherd leader who will come and perfectly tend and care for the flock of God's people. So we're gonna trace that and we're gonna stay at Ezekiel 34 because we're gonna come there. But there's many places we're gonna go. The first place you hear the first notes of this theme of shepherding is in the earliest characters of the Bible. The earliest vocation, the vocation as old as time, is the vocation of a shepherd. So Adam is given the task in the garden 
to have dominion, rule and subdue all that God has created, including the animal kingdom. So one of his roles includes at least being a shepherd who oversees a flock to care for and tend to literal sheep. And we know this in part because in Genesis 4-2, when he has a son named Abel, Abel inherits this vocation from his father, and he is called a keeper of sheep. Well, then Genesis 13, Abram is called. I'm going to bless you. And through you, blessing is going to come to the world. One of the earliest ways that Abraham is blessed is that his flocks multiply greatly. In fact, so great that in Genesis 13, his nephew Lot has been blessed because he's connected to Abraham. And Abraham's blessed because he's connected to the Lord. And the blessing is so great that they have to split up because there's not enough grazing land for their sheep to be eating in the same fields. They're eating it up too quick. So they have to split up. Abraham is tending sheep that he is blessed with. And then Genesis 30, you have one of Abraham's descendants, Jacob. And he is working diligently seven years for his bride, Rachel. What is he doing while he's working seven years for his bride, Rachel? He is working as a shepherd. And he's blessed as a shepherd. And then he has children, namely 12. 11 of whom their primary occupation was being shepherds in the land of Canaan. And we know this because when the brothers meet Joseph, who, you know, ironically, they didn't expect to meet, but they meet him. And Joseph forgives them and he reveals himself to them. And there's this reconciliation. They are fleeing a famine in the land and they're coming to Egypt because they're, they're escaping for their lives. And they, they want kind of their own, their own land there where they can survive. And, and Joseph says, when you meet Pharaoh and he asks you, what do you do? Don't tell them that you're shepherds because shepherds are despised by the Egyptians. Tell them you keep cattle, livestock, oxen, anything else but shepherds. So we know that they're shepherds. Now putting all this, this together, the fact that the earliest characters of the Bible, the patriarchs of Israel, the one kind of who established the nation that is so prominent in the scriptures, the fact that they are shepherds, that this vocation is highlighted and set apart seems to be very intentional, by divine design, you would say. God is doing this very intentionally as a way of showing this is how I am towards my people. As a shepherd is toward a sheep, this is what I am like in relationship with my people. And we don't have to guess about that because we know what the Psalms say. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. I'm reflecting on what the Lord has been for him David said, the Lord is my shepherd. Or Psalm 103. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. As a shepherd is to sheep, God uniquely highlights that, so I am towards my people. I care for my people as a shepherd cares for his sheep. And this vocation is also uniquely connected to the most notable leaders in Israel's history. When you think of the, the two most significant people who occupy a position of leadership in the history of Israel, you likely think of Moses and David. Without coincidence, I would say, not coincidentally, both of these men were called by God literally while they were going about their business as shepherds of sheep. So Exodus 3, Moses is watching a flock in the mountains when he encounters a burning bush and God calls him, you're going to be my leader who is going to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. 1 Samuel 16, one of David's brothers runs to him, calls him in from the fields while he's watching the sheep because he's the runt doing the grunt work. And he meets Samuel the prophet who says, today you're getting a promotion. You're not just going to shepherd a little flock. You're going to be king of the whole nation. Both these men called 
to the work the Lord's work as leaders of Israel from working as shepherds. Now again, it seems reasonable that this is not a mere coincidence. This is divinely orchestrated by God to tell us something. God is placing a divine spotlight on this role of a shepherd, the work of a shepherd, to teach us not only what his relationship is like to us, but how a leader should lead his people. As a shepherd cares for a flock, so my leaders, my, my king, my prophets, my priests, that's how they should care for and lead my people. Think about it. Everyone who is placed in a position of leadership has by virtue of that position a certain level of power and authority. So every position of leadership comes with it the responsibility of using authority and power in a way that would care that would help others underneath that position of leadership. And so the question that always rem- always arises in people's mind when someone's in a position of leadership is how are they going to wield that power and authority that they have as a leader? And there are, there are two ways that that question can get answered. Either a leader will take that power and authority and at the cost of self, serve others. At the cost of self, they will work for the sake of blessing others, benefiting others. Or they will take that power and authority and at the cost of others, they will serve self. They will work for the sake of self. Those are the two options you have. And I'm convinced that the Lord placed his divine spotlight on this role of shepherd and called his most prominent leaders, David and Moses, out of that work because it so wonderfully illustrates what it looks like to serve at the cost of self for the sake of others. Think about the role of a shepherd. A shepherd leads his flock from the front. Why does he lead from the front? So they know where to follow, where to go. And so that if there is any danger along the way, the shepherd is the first one to encounter it so that he can protect the sheep. He stands in the way of the sheep. You know, ironically, there was a story of, uh, there was a study group who was coming from America, going to Israel, and they're being led by, you know, this, this guy who's teaching them a study. And he was pointing out, you know, the role of a shepherd and talking about Psalm 23, Psalm 100, John 10. And he mentioned that you know, my sheep follow me and they hear my voice. Well, a shepherd always leads from the front. Well, as they're driving by, they see this group of sheep being led from behind. And so that everyone raised their hand, points out, you said, it seems like it contradicts you. So he stopped the bus, gets out, goes and talks to the gentleman saying, hey, like you're, you're screwing up my, my illustration, my story, what's going on? Well, he gets back on the bus, he's like, that wasn't the shepherd, that was the butcher. So <laughs> he was driving them to a certain place, okay? A shepherd leads from the front to, so they can follow and so that he can be the first to encounter danger. And a shepherd has to be incredibly attentive to the sheep to make sure all are present and accounted for. If any are lost, he has to seek them out. If any are injured, he has to carry them on his shoulders and his arms. If any are in danger of predators, he is the one who has to insert himself in harm's way to protect the sheep. And if the flock is hungry, he has to be the one to scout out and find the green pastures for them to graze in. And it was absolutely vital that the shepherd be this for his sheep because there is almost no more pathetic and helpless animal in all of God's green earth than a sheep. When you think about it, when you, when you were a kid and you played some imaginary game where we're going to be animals with certain powers, no kid in his right mind ever said, you know what, in this battle, I am going to be a sheep, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to neigh at you and be annoying and I'll win. No one does that. You're going to be a lion or a tiger or a bear or, or something ferocious, crocodile maybe, not a sheep. 
Sheep represent absolute dependence because of absolute helplessness. They have no defense mechanism. They're not even very cute. You know, there's really nothing to commend them to anyone. They're at the mercy of a shepherd in every single way. This is why God highlights the role of a shepherd. As a shepherd is to the sheep, so my leader ought to be, needs to be toward my people. They're at the mercy of the shepherd, which is why in the days following David's kingship, when the nation of Israel is divided, it's fractured, it's crumbling because the leaders have compromised, one of the Lord's prophets looks out and surveys all the flock of Israel and he makes this gloomy announcement. I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep without a shepherd, as sheep that had no shepherd. And you hear that one. It's, it's actually something that Jesus picks up in his ministry. I come to be a sheep. I come to be a shepherd because my people are sheep without a shepherd. And when the prophet makes this announcement, there is technically a king at this time in the nation of Israel. But the king is so compromised morally. He has so abdicated his role and responsibility as a shepherd leader that it's as if the people have been abandoned, left to fend for themselves. And in that state, they are scattered, wandered, endangered. And so this brings us to Ezekiel 34, where the prophet Ezekiel shows us that by his day, the situation had deteriorated and devolved even further. Not only had the shepherd leaders abandoned their responsibility, but they had taken, by virtue of their leadership position, that power and authority and wielded it in ways that were devastating and deteriorating to the people around them. They were abusing their positions of leadership for the sake of self. And so the leadership of Ezekiel's day was an ugly picture of what happens when leaders take that power and authority and wield it at the cost of others for the sake of self. So look at verse three and four with me in Ezekiel 34. And essentially the Lord is setting up a courtroom scene with these leaders and he is now bringing charges against them. He's formally indicting them for what they've done. Verse three, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So again, this is all metaphoric language. He's, he's taking that whole imagery, that theme of shepherding, what it ought to be like, and applying it in the political realm of the leadership of the kings and leaders of Israel in that day and saying, you have failed to do what a shepherd ought to do for a sheep in every sense of the word. They have sins of commission. They're they're doing things that they ought not to be doing. God says, do not do that. Do not slaughter and fleece the sheep, and yet you're doing it. And then they have sins of omission. They're things that they ought to be doing that they're failing to do. You ought to seek the stray, to bind up the injured, to, to gather the lost, care for the weak, and yet it's force and harshness that they've ruled them. They're doing, they're taking their position of leadership and at the cost of others, they're serving self. Well, verses five and six explain the consequences that come as a result of these, these crimes. Verse five, so they were scattered. My sheep were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. So the sheep under their care are scattered, they're endangered, they're wandering, they're lost, and there is no hope for them because no one's searching for them. They're lost with no one to seek for them. So this is, as it were, trickle-down economics of leadership. This is trickle-down economics of leadership. 
when leaders at the cost of others serve self, it is always destructive and harmful to those under that leadership. It always leads to devastation and damage to those under that leadership. But when leaders at the cost of self seek to serve others, it is always to the blessing and benefit of those under that leadership. And you can picture it like this. Picture these two scenarios of trickle-down leadership economics in David's life. So David's life can be broken up in two timelines. There's BB and AB, before Bathsheba and after Bathsheba. And before Bathsheba, David was an example of a good shepherd. He served at the cost of self for the sake of others. And Israel flourished. It was Its borders had never been as broad as they were. Peace had never been as, as good as it was. Blessing in terms of material prosperity had never been as good as it was because he was serving at the cost of self for the sake of others. But then after Bathsheba, when he turns to serving at the cost of self or serving at the cost of others for the sake of self, and that's when things start to deteriorate. The moral compromise sets in and it is a damage and devastation to the people. Same thing with Solomon. Solomon in his wisdom and Solomon in his foolishness. Two conversely demonstrated effects of leadership. So this is why when the Bible speaks of leadership and the primary qualities that should characterize a good shepherd, these are the three most important qualities that the Bible gives. Character, character, character. When the Bible looks at what a leader should be, it's not aesthetics, it's not charisma, it's not social influence and status. It is none of the things that the world looks at and says, oh, I value that, I want to follow that. It is character, character, character. Godliness, godliness, godliness. Character is destiny, as it were. There's one pastor, Robert Murray McShane, who said, and he was speaking somewhat in exaggeration, but he said it very well. He said, what my people need more than anything is my personal godliness. What he meant by that is not that they didn't need his preaching, they didn't need his shepherd, they didn't need his care. What he meant is the moral integrity of a leader has a massive influence on the people under that leadership. And the moral compromise of a leader has a massive influence on the lives of the people under that leadership. As the head of a house goes, so goes the house. As the head of a church, so goes the church. Head of a state, so goes the state. There's an intricate connection between the character of a leader and the effect of its leadership. This is why character is so important. And when, when Samuel sees David, he's, he's the runt, he's the youngest, he's just a lowly shepherd. He says, Lord, this, this can't be the one. What does the Lord say? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He doesn't evaluate the same way we do. Well, since the shepherd leaders of Israel in Ezekiel's day had so compromised their character, here's the sentence that the Lord hands down as the judge in verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Now jumping ahead to the gospels, this verse helps shine great light on Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders of his day. Why is Jesus so, as it were, hostile and aggressive with the religious leaders of his day? And here's why this is important. We tend to think of Jesus and his character very one-dimensionally, right? We have tender Jesus, gentle and lowly, meek and mild. That's true, but that's not all. That's not the full picture. Because in his words and interactions with the religious leaders, he is anything but tender. I mean, consider this. Jesus, in his interaction with the religious leaders of his day, 
publicly tarnishes their reputation over and over again before massive crowds of people by teaching that their righteousness is all show and no substance. He basically exposes them as frauds. He publicly embarrasses the religious leaders before the crowds during multiple public debates when he exposes how little they really know about the scriptures. And they're known for being Bible people. And yet he discredits them publicly multiple times. And without mincing words, he calls them publicly offspring of the devil, hypocrites, blind fools, and to top it off, he calls them whitewashed tombs. Now at one point, Jesus' disciples come to him after one of these episodes, and they say to Jesus, it's hilarious, did you know that the Pharisees were offended when you said that? Jesus broke the first and greatest commandment of postmodernism. Thou shalt not offend thy neighbor. Jesus breaks it. And Jesus' answer in Matthew 15 when they give him this, this question is essentially, I'm summarizing the Greek here, I meant to do that, okay? I intended to do that. Why did Jesus intend to offend them publicly? Why was he so tough with them? It was because Jesus came to be the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34.10. Jesus came to rescue sheep out of the mouths of false shepherds who are fleecing the sheep in order to promote their own agenda and pursue their own glory. Jesus, as tender as he needed to be with his sheep, he was equally tough towards false shepherds, in this case especially, false shepherds in the form of false teachers who were abusing their position of authority and had abdicated their responsibility. The religious leaders had loaded the people down with burden upon burden upon burden and would not themselves lift a single finger to help them hold up those burdens. They just bore them down with this legal system that was crushing the people. And Jesus comes to snatch the sheep out of their mouths by discrediting them publicly. Well, Ezekiel 34.10 gives us a prophetic picture of the toughness of the good shepherd. Then look at verse 15 and 16 where we get a picture of the tenderness of the good shepherd who's going to come. Verse 15, I myself, this is the Lord speaking, will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will give them rest. Verse 16, I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. So, Ezekiel is saying this in the midst of some of their darkest days when it came to leadership. This is before, right before the exile, when there is no leadership, but there's leadership now, but it is abdicated, abusive leadership. And in the midst of those darkest days, Israel, or Ezekiel takes up this theme of shepherding that we've been tracing, and then he uses it to kind of shine a light of gospel hope on the people, saying, one day, the Lord himself will personally come, will take up this theme in the most perfect fullest, richest ways, and will personally be a shepherd to his sheep. And so he's he's giving them this hope that they've been longing for. We know that what a leader is supposed to be. He's supposed to be a shepherd to, to the people. We don't have that. We, don't, we, we need that. And so Ezekiel says, don't worry, your longings will be fulfilled. A shepherd will come. The Lord himself personally will come to care for his people. Now, this brings us back to the question I posed at the beginning of the sermon. Of all the people that God could have put on the guest list of the birth of the King of Kings, why did he choose 
specially and specifically to invite shepherds to the birth of his son? Well, here's the answer, or at least one of the, he's doing many things. When, when he invites shepherds, before I give the main answer, let me give some other answers. When he invites shepherds, he is actually shaming the proud of his day, the religious leaders, the elite, the social hierarchy of his day. By inviting shepherds who have a menial task, who have a low social status, low social influence, God is choosing what is weak and foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the proud and the strong in the eyes of the world. He is turning things upside down. By inviting the shepherds, God is showing what kind of king this is and what kind of kingdom he's bringing. It is an upside down kingdom from the ways of this world. And he's demonstrating that this king has come for all kinds of people. He's not just coming for the elite. He's not coming for political power. He is coming even for lowly shepherds. That's who he's coming to seek and save. But as it relates to this theme we've been looking at, why does God invite shepherds? God invited shepherds to the birth of his son as a way of saying, the true and better shepherd is here. Ezekiel 34, that theme of shepherding with its introduction and now it's waiting for resolution is fulfilled in your midst today because in the city of David is born a savior who is Christ the Lord, the good shepherd. All of that longing for a true shepherd who's gonna care for the people is fulfilled by a child lying in a manger surrounded by animals in a feeding trough. And as, as these shepherds care for their flock, so my son has come to care for my people. That is what God is announcing by the invitation of this group of people. And when we view Jesus' earthly ministry through the lens of this theme of shepherding and the significance of it, it helps kind of illumine what he's doing and why he's doing it. When Jesus is teaching and preaching, he is the good shepherd who is feeding his flock with the green pastures of his word. He is helping them fight against the, the false nutrition of lies and feeding them on the truth. In Jesus' healing ministry, as he goes and he touches and restores the leopard, as he heals and restores the one who is maimed, he is a good shepherd who has come to bind up the injured, to strengthen and restore the weak. In Jesus' evangelistic ministry, like when he intentionally goes to meet the Samaritan woman at the well, or when he intentionally meets with Zacchaeus, who's hiding in a tree, or standing up in a tree, he's a good shepherd who has come to seek and save the lost, to return back the strayed. And in his own words, Jesus proclaims that he is the ultimate fulfillment of the good shepherd who at the cost of self serves for the sake of others. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. So at the cross, Jesus combines good shepherd, sacrificial lamb in one person perfectly together. At the cross, Jesus, the good shepherd, rescues us from the mouth of sin and Satan and death by becoming the sacrificial lamb in our place. Jesus brings these two things together. A shepherd who watches over sheep, he is the good shepherd who became that perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb. And therein lies another reason. Why did God invite shepherds? Well, if you were a shepherd in Israel, one of your main jobs was to oversee a flock and to inspect them and look out for spotless, unblemished sheep that could be used in the sacrificial system of Israel. So the priests would go to the shepherds and say, do you have any animals that meet the qualifications of the sacrificial lambs that we need for the Day of Atonement, for the sacrifices today? 
So these shepherds, who that was part of their main responsibility, are invited this night in Luke 2 to go and look and see in that manger, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins. This is the spotless, sinless Lamb who has come to bring an end to all of those sacrifices. He is the one who's going to say, it is finished. What a good shepherd we have. Worthy is the good shepherd who laid down his life for us. Worthy is the spotless lamb who was slain. Let's pray.